0: Book Two, Chapter One of Marcella. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. Marcella by Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Book Two, Chapter One. Book Two. A Woman Has Enough to Govern Wisely Her Own Demeanours, Passions, and Divisions. CHAPTER ONE. On a certain night in the December following the engagement of Marcella Boyce to Aldous Rayburn, the woods and fields of Mellor, and all the bare rampart of chalk down which divides the Buckinghamshire plain from the forest upland of the Chilterns, lay steeped in moonlight, and in the silence which belongs to intense frost. Winter had set in before the leaf had fallen from the last oaks. Already there had been a fortnight or so of severe cold, with hardly any snow. The pastures were delicately white, the ditches and the wet furrows in the ploughed land, the ponds on Meller Common, and the stagnant pool in the midst of the village, whence it drew its main water supply, were frozen hard. But the ploughed chalk land itself lay a dull grey besides the glitter of the pastures, and the woods under the bright sun of the days dropped their rhyme only to pass once more with the deadly cold of the night under the fantastic empire of the frost every day the veil of morning mist rose lightly from the woods uncurtaining the wintry spectacle and melting into the brilliant azure of an unflecked sky every night the moon rose without a breath of wind without a cloud and all the branch work of the trees where they stood in the open fields lay reflected clean and sharp on the whitened ground the bitter cold stole into the cottages marking the old and feeble with the touch of azrael while without in the field solitudes Bird and beast cowered benumbed and starving in hole and roosting place. How still it was, this midnight, on the fringe of the woods! Two men, sitting concealed among some bushes at the edge of Mr. Boyce's largest cover, and bent upon a common errand, hardly spoke to each other, so strange and oppressive was the silence. One was Jim Hurd, the other was a labourer, a son of old Patton of the almshouses, himself a man of nearly sixty with a small wizened face showing sharp and white tonight under his slouched hat. They looked out over a shallow cup of treeless land to a further bound of wooded hill, ending towards the north in a bare bluff of down shining steep under the moon. They were in shadow, and so was most of the wide dip of land before them. But through a gap to their right, beyond the wood, the moonbeams poured, and the farms nestling under the opposite ridge, the plantations ranging along it, and the bald beacon hill in which it broke to the plain were all in radiant light not a stir of life anywhere hurd put up his hand to his ear and leaning forward listened intently suddenly a vibration a dull thumping sound in the soil of the bank immediately beside him he started dropping his hand and stooping laid his ear to the ground "Guess the bag he said to his companion drawing himself upright you can hear em turning and creeping as plain as anything "'Now then, you take these and go to other side.' "'He handed over a bundle of rabbit nets. "'Patton, crawling on hands and knees, "'climbed over the low overgrown bank on which the hedge stood "'into the precincts of the wood itself. "'The state of the hedge, leaving the cover practically open "'and defenceless along its whole boundary, "'showed plainly enough that it belonged to the Mellor estate. "'But the field beyond was Lord Maxwell's. Hurd applied himself to netting the holes on his own side.' "'pushing the brambles and undergrowth aside "'with the sure hand of one who had already reconnoitered the ground. "'Then he crept over to Patton to see that all was right on the other side, "'came back and went for the ferrets, "'of whom he had four in a closely tied bag. "'A quarter of an hour of intense excitement followed. "'In all, five rabbits bolted, three on Herd's side, two on Patton's. "'It was all the two men could do to secure their prey, "'manage the ferrets and keep a watch on the holes.' Heard's great hands, now fixing the pegs that held the nets, now dealing death to the entangled rabbit, whose neck he broke in an instant by a turn of the thumb, now winding up the line that held the ferret, seemed to be everywhere. At last the ferret laid up, the string attached to him having either slipped or broken, greatly to the disgust of the men, who did not want to be driven either to dig, which made a noise and took time, or to lose their animal. The rabbits made no more sign, and it was tolerably evident that they had got as much as they were likely to get out of that particular berry. Heard thrust his arm deep into the hole where he had put the ferret. "'There is somewhat in the way,' he declared at last. "'Most likely a deaden. Give me the spade.' He dug away at the mouth of the hole, making as little noise as possible, and tried again. Eerie bee!' he cried, clutching at something. "'Drew it out, exclaimed in disgust.' flung it away, and pounced upon a rabbit, which, on the removal of the obstacle, followed like a flash, pursued by the lost ferret. Heard caught the rabbit by the neck, held it by main force, and killed it, then put the ferret into his pocket. "Lor," he said, wiping his brow, "'they do come sudden.' What he had pulled out was a dead cat, a wretched puss who, on some happy hunt, had got itself wedged in the hole, and so perished there miserably. He and Patton stooped over it, wondering— then Heard walked some paces along the bank, looking warily out to the right of him, across the open country all the time. He threw the poor malodorous thing far into the wood, and returned. The two men licked their pipes under the shelter of the bushes, and rested a bit, well hidden, but able to see out through a break in the bit of thicket. Six on em, said Heard, looking at the stark creatures beside him. "'I be too done to try another berry. I'll set a snare or two and be off home.' Patton puffed silently he was wondering whether Heard would give him one rabbit or two. Heard had both plant and skill, and Patton would have been glad enough to come for one. Still he was a plaintive man with a perpetual grievance, and had already made up his mind that Heard would treat him shabbily tonight, in spite of many past demonstrations that his companion was on the whole of a liberal disposition. "'You've been out working a day's work already, haven't you?' he said presently. He himself was out of work, like half the village, "'and had been presented by his wife with boiled swede for supper. "'But he knew that Hurd had been taken on at the works at the court, "'where the new drive was being made, "'and a piece of ornamental water enlarged and improved, "'mainly for the sake of giving employment in bad times. "'He, Patton, and some of his mates, had tried to get a job there, "'but the steward had turned them back. "'The men off the estate had first claim, "'and there was not room for all of them. "'Yet Hurd had been taken on, which had set people talking. "'Hurd nodded and said nothing.' He was not disposed to be communicative on the subject of his employment at the court. "'And it be true that she be going to marry Muster Rayburn?' Patton jerked his head towards the right, where above a sloping hedge the chimneys of Mellor and the tops of the Mellor Cedars, some two or three fields away, showed distinct against the deep blue night. Hurd nodded again and smoked diligently. Patton, nettled by this parsimony of speech, made the inward comment that his companion was "'A deepen. "'The village was perfectly aware of the particular friendship "'shown by Miss Boyce to the herds. "'He was goaded into trying a more stinging topic. Westall were bragging last night at Brazel's "'Braswell was the landlord of the green man at Mellor. "'He said as though they'd taken you on at the court, "'but that didn't prevent him knowing as you was a bad lot. "'He said he had his eye on you. "'He had warned you twice last year.' "'That's a lie,' said Hurd, removing his pipe an instant "'and putting it back again. "'Patton looked more cheerful.' "'Well, he spoke cruel. "'He was certain, he said, as you could tell a thing or two "'about them coverts at Tudley End, if the truth were known. "'You was always a loafer, and a loafer you'd be. Yer you might go still to Miss Boyce, he said, "'but you wouldn't do no honest work, he said. "'Not if you could help it. "'That's what he said.' "'Devil!' said Hurd between his teeth, "'with a quick lift of all his great misshapen chest. "'He took his pipe out of his mouth, "'rammed it down fiercely with his thumb, "'and put it in his pocket. "'Look out!' exclaimed Patton with a start. A whistle, clear and distinct, from the opposite side of the hollow. Then a man's figure, black and motionless, an instant on the whitened down, with a black speck beside it. Lastly, another figure higher up along the hill, in quick motion towards the first, with other specks behind it. The poachers instantly understood that it was Westall, whose particular beat lay in this part of the estate, signalling to his night watcher Charlie Dines that the two men would be on them in no time. It was the work of a few seconds to efface as far as possible the traces of their raid, to drag some thick and trailing brambles which hung near over the mouth of the hole where they had been digging, to catch up the ferrets and game, and to bid herds lurcher to come to heel. The two men crawled up the ditch with their burdens, as far away to leeward as they could get from the track by which the keepers would cross the field. The ditch was deeply overgrown, and when the approaching voices warned them to lie close, they crouched under a dense thicket of brambles and overhanging bushes, "'afraid of nothing but the noses of the keeper's dogs. "'Dogs and men, however, passed unsuspecting. "'Hold still,' said Hurd, checking Patton's first attempt to move. "'He'll be back again, like. It's his dodge.' "'And sure enough, in twenty minutes or so, the men reappeared. "'They retraced their steps from the further corner of the field, "'where some preserves of Lord Maxwell's approached very closely to the big mellow wood, "'and came back again along the diagonal path within fifty yards or so of the men in the ditch.' In the stillness, the poachers could hear Westall's harsh and peremptory voice giving some orders to his underling, or calling to the dogs who had scattered a little in the stubble. Heard's own dog quivered beside him once or twice. Then steps and voices faded into the distance, and all was safe. The poachers crept out grinning and watched the keeper's progress along the hill face till they disappeared into the Maxwell woods. E be sold again, blast him, said Heard. With a note of quite disproportionate exultation in his queer, cracked voice, Now I'll set them snares, but you better get home. Patton took the hint, gave a grunt of thanks as his companion handed him two rabbits, which he stowed away in the capacious pockets of his poacher's coat, and slouched off home by as sheltered and roundabout a way as possible. Hurd, left to himself, stowed his nets and other apparatus in a hidden crevice of the bank, and strolled along to set his snares in three hair runs, well known to him, round the further side of the wood. Then he waited impatiently for the striking of the clock in Mellow Church. The cold was bitter, but his night's work was not over yet, and he had had very good reasons for getting rid of Patton. Almost immediately the bell rang out, the echo rolling round the bend of the hills in the frosty silence. Half past twelve. Heard scrambled over the ditch, pushed his way through the dilapidated hedge, and began to climb the ascent of the wood. The outskirts of it were filled with a thin mixed growth of sapling and underwood, but the high centre of it was crowned by a grove of full-grown beeches, through which the moon, now at its height, was playing freely, as herd crambled upwards amid the dead leaves just freshly strewn, as though in yearly festival, about the polished trunks. Such infinite grace and strength in the work of the branches, branches not bent into gnarled and unexpected fantasies like those of the oak, but gathered into every conceivable harmony of upward curve and sweep, rising altogether, black against the silvery light, each tree related to and completing its neighbour, as though the whole wood so finely rounded on itself and to the hill were but one majestic conception of a master artist. But Hurd saw nothing of this as he plunged through the leaves. He was thinking that it was extremely likely a man would be on the lookout for him tonight under the big beeches a man with some business to propose to him. A few words dropped in his ear at a certain public house the night before had seemed to him to mean this. "'and he had accordingly sent Patton out of the way. "'But when he got to the top of the hill, "'no one was to be seen or heard, "'and he sat him down on a fallen log to smoke and wait a while. "'He had no sooner, however, taken his seat than he shifted it uneasily, "'turning himself round so as to look in the other direction. "'For in front of him, as he was first placed, "'there was a gap in the trees, "'and over the lower wood, plainly visible and challenging attention, "'rose the dark mass of Mellor House.' and the sight of Mellor suggested reflections just now that were not particularly agreeable to Jim Hurd. He had just been poaching Mr. Boyce's rabbits without any sort of scruple, but the thought of Miss Boyce was not pleasant to him when he was out on these nightly raids. Why had she meddled? He bore her a queer sort of grudge for it. He had just settled down to the bit of cobbling which, together with his wife's plate, served him for a blind and was full of a secret excitement as to various plans he had in hand for doing Westall, combining a maximum of gain for the winter with a maximum of safety. When Miss Boyce walked in, radiant with the news that there was employment for him at the court, on the new works, whenever he liked to go and ask for it. And then she had given him an odd look. "'And I was to pass you on a message from Lord Maxwell, heard,' she had said. "'You tell him to keep out of Westall's way for the future, and bygones shall be bygones.' Now, I'm not going to ask what that means. If you've been breaking some of our landlord's law, I'm not going to say I'm shocked. I'd alter the law tomorrow if I could. You know I would. But I do say you're a fool if you go on with it. Now you've got good work for the winter. You must please remember your wife and children.' And there he had sat like a log staring at her, both he and Minter not knowing where to look or how to speak. Then at last his wife had broken out, crying, "'Oh, miss, we should have starved!' and Miss Boyce had stopped her in a moment, catching her by the hand. Didn't she know it? Was she there to preach to them? Only must promised not to do it any more for his wife's sake. And he, stammering, left without excuse or resource, either against her charge or the work she offered him, had promised her, and promised her, moreover, in his trepidation, with more fervency than he at all liked to remember. For about a fortnight, perhaps, he had gone to the court by day and had kept indoors by night then just as the vagabond passions the celtic instincts so long repressed so lately roused were goading at him again he met westall in the road westall who looked him over from top to toe with an insolent smile as much as to say well my man we got the whip hand of you now that same night he crept out again in the dark in the early morning in spite of all minter's tears and scolding well what matter as towards the rich and the law he had the morals of the slave who does not feel that he has had any part in making the rules he is expected to keep, and breaks them when he can with glee. It made him uncomfortable, certainly, that Miss Boyce should come in and out of their place as she did, should be teaching Willie to read, bringing her old dresses to make up for Daisy and Nelly, while he was making a fool of her in this way. Still he took it all as it came. One sensation wiped out another. Besides, Miss Boyce had, after all, much part in this double life of his. Whenever he was at home sitting over the fire with a pipe, he read those papers and things that she had brought him in the summer. He had not taken much notice of them at first. Now he spelled them out again and again. He had always thought them rich people took advantage of you, but he had never supposed somehow that they were such thieves, such mean thieves, as it appeared they were. A curious ferment filled his restless, inconsequent brain. The poor were downtrodden, but they were coming to their rights the land and its creatures were for the people, not for the idle rich. Above all, Westall was a devil and must be put down. For the rest, if he could have given words to experience, he would have said that since he began to go out poaching he had burst his prison and found himself. A life which was not merely endurance pulsed in him. The scent of the night woods, the keenness of the night air, The tracks and ways of the wild creatures, the wiles by which he slew them, the talents and charms of his dog Bruno, these things had developed in him new aptitudes, both of mind and body, which were in themselves exhilaration. He carried his dwarf's frame more erect, breathed from an ampler chest. As for his work at the court, he thought of it often with impatience and disgust. It was a more useful blind than his cobbling, or he would have shammed illness and got quit of it. Then were sharpens that managed that business at Tudley End.' He fell thinking about it and chuckling over it as he smoked. Two of Westall's best coverts swept almost clear "'just before the big shoot in November, "'and all done so quick and quiet before you could say Jack Robinson. "'Well, there was plenty more yet, more woods and more birds. "'There were those coverts down there on the mellow side of the hollow. "'They had been kept for the last shoot in January. "'Hang him! Why wasn't that fellow up to time?' "'But no one came.' and he must sit on, shivering and smoking, a sack across his shoulders. As the stir and nerve of blood caused by the ferreting subsided, his spirits began to sink. Mists of Celtic melancholy, perhaps of Celtic superstition, gained upon him. He found himself glancing from side to side, troubled by the noises in the wood. A sad light wind crept about the trunks like a whisper. The owls called overhead. Sometimes there was a sudden sharp rustle or fall of a branch that startled him yet he knew every track, every tree in that wood. Up and down that field outside he had followed his father at the plough, a sickly little object of a lad, yet seldom unhappy, so long as childhood lasted and his mother's temper could be fled from, either at school or in the fields. Under that boundary hedge to the right he had lain stunned and bleeding all a summer afternoon, after old Westall had thrashed him, his heart scorched within him by the sense of wrong and the craving for revenge. "'On that dim path leading down the slope of the wood, "'George Westall had once knocked him down "'for disturbing a sitting pheasant. "'He could see himself falling, "'the tall, powerful lad standing over him with a grin. "'Then, inconsequently, he began to think of his father's death. "'He made a good end,' did the old man. "'Jim, my lad, the Lord's very merciful. "'Or, Jim, you'll look after Anne.' "'Anne was the only daughter. "'Then a sigh or two, and a bit of sleep, and it was done.' And everybody must go the same way, must come to the same stopping of the breath, the same awfulness, in a life of blind habit, of a moment that never had been before and never could be again? He did not put it to these words, but the shudder that is in the thought for all of us seized him. He was very apt to think of dying, to ponder in his secret heart how it would be and when, and always it made him very soft towards Minta and the children.' Not only did the life instinct cling to them, to the warm human hands and faces, hemming him in and protecting him from the darkness beyond with its shapes of terror, but to think of himself as sick and gasping to his end like his father was to put himself back in his old relation to his wife when they were first married. He might cross minter now, but if he came to lie sick, he could see himself there, in the future, following her about with his eyes and thanking her and doing all she told him, just as he'd used to do. He couldn't die without her to help him through. The very idea of her being taken first roused in him a kind of spasm, a fierceness, a clenching of the hands. But all the same, in this poaching matter, he must have his way, and she must just get used to it. Ah, a low whistle from the further side of the wood. He replied, and was almost instantly joined by a tall, slouching youth, by day a blacksmith's apprentice at Gairsley, the Maxwell's village, who had often brought him information before. The two sat talking for ten minutes or so on the log. Then they parted. Heard went back to the ditch where he had left the game, put two rabbits into his pockets, left the other two to be removed in the morning when he came to look at his snares, and went off home, keeping as much as possible to the shelter of the hedges. On one occasion he braved the moonlight in the open field rather than pass through a woody corner where an old farmer had been found dead some six years before. "'Then he reached a deep lane leading to the village "'and was soon at his own door. "'As he climbed the wooden ladder leading to the one-bedroom "'where he, his wife, and his four children slept, "'his wife sprang up in bed. "'Jim, you must be perished. "'Such a night as tis. "'Oh, Jim, where have you been?' "'She was a miserable figure in her coarse nightgown, "'with her grizzling hair wild about her "'and her thin arms nervously outstretched along the bed. "'The room was freezing cold.' and the moonlight stealing through the scanty bits of curtains brought into dismal clearness the squalid bed, the stained walls, and bare uneven floor. On an iron bedstead, at the foot of the large bed, lay Willie, restless and coughing, with the elder girl beside him fast asleep. The other girl lay beside her mother, and the wooden box with rockers, which held the baby, stood within reach of Mrs. Hurd's arm. He made her no answer, but went to look at the coughing boy, who had been in bed for a week with bronchitis, ''You've never been and got in Westall's way again,'' she said anxiously. ''It's no good my trying to get a wink of sleep when you're out like this.'' ''Don't you worry yourself,'' he said to her, not roughly, but decidedly. ''I'm all right. This boy's bad,'' Minter. ''Yes, and I kept up the fire and put the spout on the kettle too.'' She pointed to the grate and to the thin line of steam, which was doing its powerless best against the arctic cold of the room. Hurd bent over the boy and tried to put him comfortable. The child, weak and feverish, only began to cry, a hoarse bronchial crying which threatened to wake the baby. He could not be stopped, so Hurd made haste to take off his own coat and boots and then lifted the poor soul in his arms. "'You'll be quiet, Will, and go to sleep, won't you, if Daddy takes care of you?' He wrapped his own coat around the little fellow and, lying down beside his wife, took him on his arm and drew the thin brown blankets over himself and his charge." He himself was warm with exercise, and in a little while the huddling creatures on either side of him were warm too. The quick panting breath of the boy soon showed that he was asleep. His father too sank almost instantly into deep gulfs of sleep. Only the wife, nervous, overdone, and possessed by a thousand fears, lay tossing and wakeful hour after hour, while the still glory of the winter night passed by. End of Book Two, Chapter One